Uh, today the sermon will be based on Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified, because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about a hundred years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're uh, jumping back in. Romans chapter 4. Uh, we're in a series right now uh, called How to Get Right. How to Get Right. A lot of people, uh, when I talk to them about the Lord, uh, when I uh, you know, try to get them to follow Jesus, come to church, what have you, they'll say something to the effect of, well, let me, let me get right. Let me get right first. You know, they might be feeling some sort of guilt, feeling like they need to, to get something together in order to be acceptable in God's sight. And so scripture is very clear in Romans 4 and 5, uh, what is required to be in God's presence. And uh, newsflash is not what you can do. Okay, it's what he has done. It's what he has done. So I'm excited to get into Romans 4 today. Now, uh, when I was... Um, engaged and, and dating my wife, she threw me multiple surprise birthday parties. And every single time, I would, it was usually at my dad's house, I'd walk in there and I'm like, who? Oh, snap. It's for me. You know? <laughs> and I'd walk in and I'd be so, like, she, she would hide it so well. Like, I had no idea that it, would, that it was going to happen. And one of the, the coolest things about it as I would ponder it is I would think about all the preparation that was made. It wasn't simply that there was a party. It's that she had put so much time and thought and care and communicating and setting it up and, and getting the food and getting people together. And, and, and I, how good do you feel when someone not only does something nice for you, but actually takes a while to plan it? You think, man, they really set aside some time to show me some kindness. Well, what we can learn from the text today is that God has been planning to bless you since before you were born. 
Since before you were even a thought, God had a plan that he enacted all the way back in Genesis, not to just bless random people, but to bless you. This is God's goodness to us that he didn't just one day uh, when we were like seven or eight, like I'm going to do something nice for that person. No, no, no. Centuries and thousands of years before we ever took a breath on this earth, God had us in mind and put in action a plan in order to bless us. And so we're going to take a look at this text to see how God has set out to bless us. See, if you're reading the text, you'll notice that it talks about Abraham a lot. So we need to do just a quick overview of Abraham and his life. There's a saying that, that, I, 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 that we have at the church, and it's when you're reading the scripture, context is king. Context is king. So you're reading something, and you're like, what in the world is this talking about? Well, you read what's before, you read what's after, and ultimately you read Scripture in the whole uh, scope of the Bible itself. That's how we understand what it exactly is talking about. And so we're going to take a little, little trip back to Genesis 12, and we can see that God calls Abraham and gives him a promise. Listen, this is Genesis 12, 1 through 4. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with content, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Now, I want you to understand this. There is no record of Abraham doing anything before this that would mark him out as an extra cool guy that God would want to talk to. Like before this, they're like, there's this guy named Abraham, and like, that's it. That's, that's, that's all that's written about him. It wasn't like, and he walked with God closely. In fact, in fact, he did not know anything about God until the Lord spoke to him. See, th- this shows us something. So imagine like, like your boss coming to you on your first day at work. It's your first day where he comes to you, and he just he gives you the seat of honor in front of the whole company. Like, look. Look at this person. Oh, man, I just, I just want to honor them in front of you all. And in the back of your head, you're like, I just got here. You know, like, I ain't really do nothing. You know, <laughs> I'm like, you'd be happy, but you'd be somewhat like, oh, cool. You'd be a little bit perplexed because you're like, I didn't, I ain't, you ain't even seen my, my work yet. I hope, I mean, I hope I live up. You know, you know it, it would be a very interesting experience. And so the story of Abraham begins with God's grace, this idea of favor that is not earned. He got a seat at the table with the Lord, and he didn't do nothing in order to get that seat. And so God shows up to this man who hasn't done anything to deserve it and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a legacy, and I'm going to give you protection. Hey, Abraham, person who showed up, I'm going to make your name great. It's like, thank you. You know, like, that's awesome. And, and I'm going to protect you. I'm going to curse those who treat you with contempt. They, he has the protection of the Lord of the universe. And again, what did he do to get it? Nothing. And he gives him another pr- promise. This is all the peoples, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and his family. See, God expects the blessing to Abraham to be in such abundance that it will bring joy and salvation, not only to him, not only to his family, but to everybody in the whole world. And God continues to confirm this promise to Abraham. A couple of chapters later in Genesis 15, verse 4, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to him. 
This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Now, the context of this is that Abraham did not have a a biological son and Abraham was 100. The wife was 90. It wasn't like, it it was like in the realm of possibility. So Abraham's like, well, God gave me this promise. Uh, I guess somebody has has to be my heir. So he took one of his his hired servants. He's like, I guess guess it's going to be you because I don't see a way in which I'm about to have a child up in here. But God will work a miracle and give Abraham natural descendants. And beloved, the scripture is a testimony that he fulfilled that. Right? God gave him Isaac. Not only Isaac, he gave him the whole people of Israel. And if you study uh, the genealogy in Matthew, you'll find that somewhere down the progenity of Abraham is Jesus Christ himself. That God chose Abraham. Remember, for why? Why? Because God chose Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to use you to bless all of the nations in the world. Now, how does he do that? Chiefly through Jesus, right? Is not in Jesus the way that the whole world is blessed? And Abraham did not do anything to deserve that. So that's the context of what we're looking at. So back to Romans 4. The promise made to Abraham and his descendants was a result of grace. Look at verse 13. For the promise. Now, what's the promise? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you all these kids. And everybody's going to be blessed through you. Okay, that's the promise. For the promise to Abraham or his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the one who was of the law, but also to the one who was of the faith of Abraham. He is a father of us all. So so what he's saying is the promise wasn't made by law. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's it's the principle that fundamentally we all kind of live by. In order to get something good, I do something good. Right? We all fundamentally understand. That's, that's the principle of the law when the scriptures are talking about that. So, so you naturally think this way, like, you know, if, if I want God to bless me, you know, maybe I'll do X, Y, and Z, and then he'll bless me. It's really funny. Like, a lot of times, this will happen uh, in two ways. If somebody has a good time or if they have a crisis, and I know them, and they don't usually come to church, most of the time they be there on Sunday. They'd be like, well, I got you know, I to gotta make my exchange. I got to do something good in order for, for it to work well for me. And he's saying, listen, if the promise is based on that, it's not guaranteeable. If the promise is based on that, it's conditional. And ultimately, it would make the promise void because do you know anybody who can perfectly live up to God's law? No. No, so, so God made a promise to Abraham knowing full well that if he gave conditions to the promise, that Abraham would not be able to receive the promise. But he wanted to make sure that his plan and his promise was foolproof. And so he didn't give any conditions to it. It says something interesting that, that the law produces wrath. The law produces wrath. Now, you actually understand this, even if you don't. 
You say you have a, you have a friend or an associate, like, y'all, y'all fine, you ain't mad at nobody. But if y'all make an agreement and the person breaks the agreement, you're like, well, hey, I thought we was cool, though. You see what I'm saying? Like, like I have no issues with Greenville Water. But one time I got a bill, and it was five times high. And I was like, hold up, Greenville Water. Now, we, I got to call you. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, <laughs> but, but the idea is this, that if there is an agreement that actually sets up the stage for you to be disappointed. And God says, if I make this based on law, I know you, and you're not going to do it, and I'm going to get frustrated because you broke our agreement. But yet the promise was guaranteed. That's why it's not up to works. Grace assures us that the blessing, because it's not conditional, a contract which one party is responsible for the whole thing, that's the promise that God gave to Abraham. I'm going to make you a promise. I, I'm fulfill both sides of the contract. You good. You, you like that? You like those details? I mean, that's, that's a nice little contract. You feel me? God makes the promise and will fulfill all the conditions. And Paul even makes this further claim. The, 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 the promise is not simply for Abraham or for Abraham's children. The promise is for believers in Christ. That the promises fill the, in the one who has Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. The promise to be blessed and be a blessing is for all those who have faith in Christ. And Abraham sets up the paradigm for what that looks like. Did Abraham work for the promise? No. Do you work for the promise? No. It is all about grace. See, God can make and fulfill his promise because of his power. Look at verse 17. It says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. So God has the power to create. God has the power to resurrect. Now listen, when you think about creation, even if you've created, maybe you're an artist or something, usually you have some sort of raw material you're working with, right? So my wife, she likes to paint, so she has her, her, her colors and her canvas, and then she creates. And it's still, it's still cool, but I want you to understand something. When God created the world, when he created the masterpiece of you, he didn't actually start with raw material. He made the raw material itself. Latin for that is ex, he created ex nihilo. That means that there wasn't anything. God created the stuff to make something, and then he made the stuff. Listen, the greatest artist you can think of did not make the raw material itself. But when God created the world, he created the raw material and the resources in order to make the world. The point being is, if that one makes a promise, do you think he can fulfill it? Not only that, God has the power to resurrect. Listen, because he made things out of nothing, he can also, also resurrect and bring to life that which is dead. How would this not boost our faith if we meditated on this? We have trust in the God who made all things from nothing. And he goes on to say that the idea is that Abraham's faith was a reason for God calling him righteous. Look at verse 18. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he would become the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith we consider his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old. 
and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Listen, Abraham's faith was difficult because of the complexity of what was promised. Him being 100, his wife being 90, like it's not that you don't read that every day that that 90 year olds have babies. Okay? And God's like, hey, by the way, I'm gonna give you a child. Now, if it was something simple, you know, I'll, you know, I'll I'll bring you some food or you'd be like, that's in the realm of possibility. That, you know, that could happen. But what God promises, like, there's just no, unless he steps in, there's no way this is gonna happen. And this kind of describes sometimes how faith is, is believing in things that sometimes seem impossible. Now, here's the craziest thing about this verse. The verse says that Abraham did not weaken in faith. Now, if you didn't read Genesis, that is confusing. When I read that verse, I'm like, he didn't weaken in faith. Nah, he was tripping. Like, <laughs> there seemed a lot of different occasions when Abraham was not really strong in the faith. There was this one time he went to this foreign land, and, and it, according to the scriptures, apparently his wife was, was a very attractive lady, even at 90 years old, okay? And, and when the king of that land said, I actually want your wife, he's like, that's not my wife, that's my sister. Now, hold up, what kind of faith is that? What kind of, what kind of not, waver, not wavering faith? What the? Not only that, you know, it took a while for them to have a, have a, a child, and so they were like, well, maybe we can expedite this so, like, there's this lady over there. Do you want to have a child with me? They, and then they had another child. Like, what kind of unwavering faith is this? This does not seem like unwavering faith. Yet God said it was. And, and for some strange reason, I'm thankful that God has a generous view of faith. He has a very generous view of faith. Man, a lot of y'all struggle because you're like, my faith is so weak. It feels just like a, like a little, little uh, uh, candlelight. It's just flickering. It's flickering. Beloved, the strength is not in our faith, but rather in the one who promised it. That God can look at our weak, flickering. Sometimes if, if we observe it by ourselves, like that's not that cool, not that great. He can look at that and says, I'll even count that. I'll even count that. Jesus said that, our faith can be the size of a mustard seed. I think they're like a little sesame seed. Yo, your faith can be that size, and God says, I will accept that. Now, the scripture says that Abraham's faith grew. As he grew older, his confidence and obedience grew. It actually grew into a mature faith, and that's hope for your faith, even if you feel like it's weak now. That God, over time, can strengthen us. And Abraham was given righteousness, the statement of righteousness over him because of his faith. God saw Abraham's true and sometimes very weak faith and credited to him righteousness. Now listen, when God said, Abraham, you're righteous, was Abraham in fact technically righteous? No, he wasn't. But God gave him this verdict of righteousness. I'm going to count you as righteous even though you are not. There's hope for us, y'all, in our weak, wavering faith. You can have some days you look back at the week, you was like, I was tripping hard. 
And God says, I take that weak, mustard seed, wavering, jacked up faith because it is in me that you are counted righteousness, not in the quality of the faith. See, the the promise and pattern of Abraham's faith is a lesson for us. Look at verse 23. Now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, okay, but also for us. So the whole story about Abraham wasn't just because Abraham was cool or because God wanted to do a fancy story. The whole story about Abraham is actually supposed to teach you something about your faith. Listen, it will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Listen, we are to believe and have hope against hope. Now listen, Abraham believed something crazy. Yeah, I'm going to give you uh, a son and it's going to be a nation. Everybody's going to get blessed through it. I don't know which one is crazier. Hey, I want you to believe in that this man who lived 2,000 years ago was the son of God and he died on the cross and he rose again. Because of that, you can, forgive, you can receive forgiveness. I don't know which one is crazier, but we are to have hope against hope. Listen, we're called to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, something that we haven't seen. I don't, have you ever seen somebody raised from the dead? I mean, I ain't, see, I ain't never seen that. I mean, if you have, that's pretty cool. But the idea is this. Abraham's faith is a pattern for us that we're called to believe something so miraculous. But, beloved, if we believe it, we get the same credit as Abraham. Though he was not actually righteous, he got credited for righteousness. And the same is for us if we believe. You know, it says that Jesus died for our sins. You know, you can look at Abraham's life and some of the, the messed up things that he did, and you can think, well, if you're just honest, you're like, is God fair? Like, Abraham got blessed a lot, and he didn't, like, didn't always do the right thing. He didn't always, he wasn't always an upstanding citizen, if you will. Does God just overlook that? Does he just, oh, it's Okay. No, beloved, in Romans 3, we, we understand that all the sins that God overlooked were put on Christ on the cross. And the same for yours. Is God fair? Is he right? Is he just to call you righteous even though you really aren't? It's not that he turned a blind eye, but that he himself paid the bill for our unrighteousness. Beloved, he is fair because he is the judge and he also decided to get down and be in our place. He took our punishment, the consequences of our sin on the cross. He doesn't look, overlook Abraham's sins and he doesn't overlook yours. He deals with it. But he deals with it in a way that's so generous to us. Now here's, I, one, I love verse 25. <laughs> he was delivered up for our tres- trespasses and raised up for our justification. You know, a lot of times, you know, I, I did this study a while back. I, I, I went to go uh, read all of the uh, examples of preaching in the book of Acts. Because I'm like, well, if I want to preach, I should probably preach like the apostles. Like, that would be a good call for me. And one of the interesting things that I found is how much they focused on the resurrection. A lot of times when I think about sermons, it's like this. Jesus died! And he rose again. But, like, their emphasis was the complete opposite. He died, but God raised him up. Now, why is that? Why, why, why was that emphasis so important? Well, according to this, 
that Jesus was raised for our justification. Listen, listen, Jesus died a, 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 a sinner's cursed death. Like, like if, if you were around at Jesus' day and you saw him on the cross, you would think, well, what in the world did he do to get up there? He must have done something really heinous and really bad. Now, one of the reasons that God raised him from the dead was to make sure that that was not the record. God raised him from the dead as vindication of his own righteousness. Jesus did nothing wrong, and I will demonstrate it. Even though he died a shameful death, I will give him glory and honor when he rises from the dead. He has been vindicated. Or another word for that is justified. Been declared righteous because he actually is. But beloved, the crazy thing about his vindication and his resurrection is that his vindication becomes ours. It becomes ours. He was declared righteous because he is. But then he shares his righteousness with us because he was declared guilty when he was not. Beloved, he, he switches statements. The statement that is true of him becomes true of us. And the statement that was true about us, that we are sinners and deserving of some sort of consequence, became true of him on the cross. Beloved, that's why it's so important that he rose from the dead. Now, the reality is sometimes it's hard to believe in this justification. That God calls me righteous. Now, I'm not saying like you don't lose it in your, like the, the fact or the sentence in your head. But I'm sure there are some days where you're like, I feel real bad today. I, I feel like I'm living up to the standard. You sure I'm righteous today, Lord? When that guilt is eating at your soul or when that shame covers your eyes and you want to hide and duck and you don't want to be in front of God or in front of God's people. In those moments, you actually have the opportunity to live out the faith of Abraham. Okay, God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham's like, I'm 100. She 90. I don't, you know, like. I don't know how this is going to work. Listen, God says, you are righteous. You're like, well, yesterday I was tripping. That is an opportunity to, to, to exemplify the same type of faith. Throw what you're saying, God, does not look like it's true. It does not seem it, the reality to me. But, beloved, we are called to have the faith of Abraham. So on your worst day, if you believe in Jesus, you are called to believe that he has declared you righteous. Beloved, that's the faith of Abraham, and that's how we imitate and copy it. Even though it doesn't match the, the description of our character, the God who created everything out of nothing says it's so. So, beloved, it's so. Beloved, this means we can live in the freedom of God's blessing, the freedom of his, his goodness, his forgiveness, and his celebration. You got to understand something. You got to understand something. When, when, when God the Father sees Jesus, it's not somebody like, I kind of like him. The Old Testament says that, that, no, no, he is the one in whom my soul delights. Because of his right, I delight in him. I celebrate over him. Now, the same thing that is over him the same statement that's over him, the same celebration that's over him, if you are in Christ, is over you. On your worst day, God says, this is the one in whom my soul delights. Beloved, this is the fight of faith. 
not only that you would stop doing what you know you ought to do, which you should, but sometimes the greater fight is believing that what God said about me is true. And it's a faith that has to grow. And by God's grace, it will. Do you understand how much joy and freedom that we would live in if we believed these things? If we, come on, y'all. If, if I woke up and go, God says he delights in me. Oh, man, it's going to be a good day. Oh, man, I was tripping yesterday, but oh, that's under the blood. Oh, they said this, that, and another about me, but what does God say? They say, you, you're, not, uh, you're not all that good. I don't like you. You get out my face, and God says, come here. I want to see you. I delight you. Beloved, this changes the whole demeanor of our life. And it's one of the surest tools to fight sin. Listen, there's this thing called the sin cycle. I'm going to show you how sin works in, in our lives. You feel like you have some desire that's unmet. You know, you look, maybe it's, you know, jealousy or, you know, lust, whatever. You got some, some desire that's not met. And instead of going to the one who created all things and, and asking him for it, you're like, I'm going to just get it myself. I'm going to do, do what I need to do to get mine. So then you go get yours, and then, then what happens is then you start to feel some shame. You feel shame and guilt, and which makes you run away from the God himself who can remove the shame and guilt. And you feel so bad about the shame and guilt, you're like, well, I need, some, I need to get mine again. I need some joy. I need some happiness. And then you go and get yours again, and then, boom, you're right back there in the sin and the shame and the guilt. Beloved, the gospel breaks that cycle. That the moment when you sin, if I have faith like Abraham and I'm in Christ, I can say, even though I just sinned, even though I missed the mark, the Lord Jesus and the Father God himself declares me righteous and I can go into his presence with zero shame because all of my shame has been put on the cross of Christ. Beloved, it breaks it. We don't have to live in any shame. We can run straight to him and receive his love and forgiveness and delight. Beloved, this is one of the tools of righteousness and a tool for deep joy. Now, what does this call for us to do? How can we, how can we live into the application of this a little bit more? One, I would say this, is that we need to focus on God's promises through his word. See, the, the Christian life is about clinging to promises. And beloved, you can't cling to promises that you don't know. Yeah? You cannot cling to promises that you don't know are a thing to cling to. That is why we read Scripture. You don't cling to stuff that's not in front of you a lot. You're like, I heard that one time, but I kind of, it's kind of fuzzy. My mind. I don't remember it too well. Beloved, what if when you read Scripture, it wasn't just a duty that you felt you ought to do, but you set the Scripture before you and said, let me find the promises that I can cling to. Let me find the words of good news. Let me find uh, the, the counter argument to my guilt and shame. What if, what if you looked at scripture like that? You know, there, there's, this, there's this guy named George Mueller. I'm a dork, y'all know that. George Mueller, he was, he was a pastor and he, and he ran uh, an orphanage uh, centuries ago in England. And, and one of the things that he, he did, he says, I'm, I'm never going to ask for support. I'm just going to pray for it. I'm going to ask the Lord to provide. He didn't, he didn't like write a newsletter for support. Sometimes they would sit down at the table and there wouldn't be no food. And he said, thank you for the food. And somebody knocked on the door like, you need food. And like, yeah, I just pray for that. 
And one of his spiritual practices, he says, before I even pray, I wake up in the morning and my goal is to make my heart happy in the, in the word of God. That's my goal. I'm going to put God's word before me so it stirs up joy in my heart, which then gives you faith to pray those types of things. So this is why we encourage daily Bible reading, that not just so you could check it out the box. I'm just telling you that if you don't get in the scriptures, there's joy on the table that you just leave there. And I'm telling you, it's there for you to grab and to enjoy. If you're like, how do I start? Where do I start? We have a, a Bible reading plan you can find straight up on our website. You can download it on your phone. It's two chapters a day. It'll even read it to you. I, I, look, I, don't, if, I couldn't make it easy unless I came up into your house and read it to you, okay? So like, <laughs> it's there for you so that you can engage God's word. You know, how, 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 not only should we read it, how should we read God's word? And the New City Catechism says that we read God's word with diligence, preparation, and prayer so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Too often we are in a rush. You know what I'm talking about. I read it. You ever read something and then like, what did I just read? That happens to me a lot. I was like, wait, wait, what, what? <laughs> I forgot already. I just read it. <laughs> like, but no, when we come to God's word and we say, this is the feast of joy, the promises for which I wage war, the statements about God's delight in me, let me slow down. <laughs> let me wait a minute. And let me, let me read slowly and with great expectation that the God of the universe himself will speak to me. Listen, y'all, 2 Timothy says that, that God's word is, is, is God-breathed. It's like, like when you're reading the scriptures or you're hearing the scriptures preach, that God is standing in front of your face and he's speaking to you. I don't know how many times I heard people say, I wish God would tell me what to do. And I'm telling you to open the book. Open the book and he will speak to you. Here's the other thing that, that the doctrine of justification does. Just how Abraham was blessed in order so that he would bless others, so are we. So are we. How much anxiety do we waste wondering if we're going to be okay? In my bills, is this going to happen? Am I, you know, you're just worried about different things, right? And you're consumed with yourself. But the scripture says, if him who would not, who didn't, was not afraid to give up his own son for you, will he not give you everything? <laughs> Beloved, the more I focus on what Christ has given me, the more confidence I have to go, now, he, if he gave me that, he's going to take care of whatever I need. And that doesn't mean I just sit there. That means I go, well, then let me look around myself. Who is in need? How can I help and how can I serve? God has served me in such an awesome and complete way that it frees me up to look around myself and go, okay, who, who needs help? See, we, we primarily bless people, not through the, the grand feats of service that happen every once in a while, but through our regular callings. We all have regular callings, husband, wife, child, father, worker, boss. You all have these regular callings. And beloved, those are the people that God has put you near to bless because he's taking care of you. And you're like, who, who do I help? Look around. Not the person all the way over there, but the person right here. Who do you bless? Bless those who you see and have responsibilities to regularly. And beloved, we bless those in need. 
We think about those in need around us, those whom others would overlook, because, beloved, we could surely have been overlooked by God, but we were not. We have been blessed with forgiveness, with righteousness, with this verdict of justification. And because God has done that, we can have joy and peace and delight. And that frees us up to look around and say, I'm not, I'm not too worried about myself because God got me. What, what can I do for you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Lord, it's such a, a blessing to us. It, 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 it tells us of all the things that you have freely given us. Among them, forgiveness of sins and justification. Among them, the opportunity to serve and bless those around us. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be happy, that, that we would have a deep delight knowing that you delight in us, that we would have deep security knowing what you have provided for us. And Lord God, I pray that out of the abundance of joy and satisfaction we have in you and in your gospel, that we would bless those around us. Lord, I ask this. In the name of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, amen, amen.